You're listening to the Oxfam Podcast, the show where we share our learning and knowledge with the sector. So you can hear how we work, how we think, and why we do what we do. Remember, you can subscribe to us on all your usual podcast providers. Hello, and welcome to Oxfam In-Depth Podcast. I'm Simone Lombardini, Impact Evaluation Lead at Oxfam. Online activity has become increasingly important in many areas of life. Social media specifically has the potential to profoundly impact the way society works. Social media data offers many new opportunities for data collection and data analysis. However, researchers and evaluators also need to take in consideration the limitation and ethical consideration that comes to it. We are recording at the end of March 2020. And as most of the listeners will know, these are difficult and unprecedented times coming as a result of COVID-19. Today, we will be looking at the topic of social media data and its implication for research and evaluation under the COVID-19 lens. With me to discuss web and social media data are Nicole Schwitter, PhD candidate and research assistant at the Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Simona. Happy to be here. And uh, Alexia Pretari, Impact Evaluation Advisor at Oxfam GB. Hi, Alexia. Hi, Simone. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And just to be clear, both Nicole and Alexia are calling from their homes. So let's start. Nicole, you recently published a new Going Digital Guideline with the title Web Data Collection using Twitter as an example. And these guidelines are written with uh, Ulf Lieber professor of sociology at the University of Warwick as a result of a collaboration on an impact evaluation which was led by Alexia in Tanzania. In this paper, you discuss how web data, in particular social media data, can be collected and provides hands-on guidelines for harvesting Twitter data. And just as a piece of advice for all of us that are in lockdown in their homes and want to learn how to code, they have plenty of code as an example that we can use to learn how to code. My question for you, Nicole, is if you can explain what is web data and in particular social media data, and if you can give us some examples on how this can be used in social science research. Yes. So web data is any data that is created through online activity and that is available on the web. So this covers a large variety of data. It's anything from election results that are online to recent train times. It can mean press releases and social media posts, or it can also be hotel reviews or rent advertisements. And it covers data that has been created intentionally, so it's the content of a social media post, but there's also a large amount of metadata available that has not been created by the user with any intention, like the timing of the post, the browser version that has been used, etc. And web data has been used in a lot of research. Two prominent examples are the Google Flu project and the Billion Prizes project. So Google Flu was an initiative where researchers try to predict the prevalence of flu cases depending on Google search history. So they were looking at what people Google, what they use Google for, if they Google symptoms of the flu. So what does it mean if I have a cough or a fever? And they were looking where people are from that have those Google history to uh, predict the prevalence in a quick and time efficient and cost efficient way. 
The Billion Prices project was used to improve the computation of traditional economic indicators with online price collection, which is easier and cheaper than to have people look up prices in stores. Now, social media data in particular is data from social media sites such as Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Those sites are used for interactions between users to facilitate the sharing of information and they do create communities. So they are in particular interesting for sociologists. And um, some examples of social media research, um, it has been used to measure the size of crowds by looking at um, geotags of Instagram posts. It has also been used to analyze hate speech and discrimination by monitoring right-wing Facebook pages. And it has been used in the context of presidential elections. For example, the social media campaigns of Trump and Clinton in 2016 has been analyzed to look at how they campaign on Twitter and online. So a lot of data is there, but the problem and the question we try to answer in the guideline is how do we get to that data and how can we use it? And Nicole, before we go into this, you mentioned Google flu and obviously we're all focused now on the COVID-19 disease and most of us are in self-isolation using social media quite a lot. So have you come across any analysis um, linked to COVID-19 and social media data? There's a lot of preliminary data analysis by data enthusiasts, not so much in any peer-reviewed journals just yet. So there are people that have looked at the reaction of the COVID outbreak and how it reflects on Twitter. So what have people been tweeting about that use the hashtag COVID? Um, how have opinions and the sentiments changed? What kind of words occur a lot with the hashtag and at the places where COVID has broken out already? And people have looked at tweets since December up until now to look at how opinions and feelings have changed. So there is quite a bit out there. Thank you, Nicole. Let's move to the content in the guidelines. And as we said, this wants to provide some hands-on guidance for harvesting Twitter data. But what I really liked about the paper is that contrary to many other guidelines I've seen, this starts with the ethical considerations first. So can you give us some examples or an overview of the ethical considerations that researchers and evaluation need to be aware when using this type of data? Well, in general, web data is still kind of a gray area in research, so there are no clear-cut rules to follow. One might think the information is public, so you could do anything with it. But um, web data and social media data is there for a different purpose. It is usually posted to network and to share things with friends or other people, but not so much to be used in research. So users are not aware that the posts they publish might be used in a very different context. So the gold standard would be, of course, to have consent of anyone that you're researching, but this can be very difficult. The scale of Twitter is immense. So it's impossible to ask every Twitter user for consent. Also, people might be anonymous online, so it might even be impossible to ask them. In the guideline, we cover seven points that one should consider. So first of all, keep in mind the terms and condition of the social media sites. Twitter and Facebook and all other sites allow you to do certain things and prohibit others. So follow those terms and conditions. Second of all, if you're a researcher affiliated with an institution, follow that your institution's guidelines and um, get ethical approval if possible. Another thing to consider is if um, users can expect to be observed by strangers. So how open and public is the site? So for example, Twitter profiles are by default public. 
while Facebook profiles are restricted to people that are um, registered on the site or even you have to be friends with the people you're observing. So this is a very different dynamic on those two sides that a researcher needs to keep in mind. Also, how vulnerable is the user? It is very different if someone wants to research minors or elderly people. How sensitive is the topic that you're researching? So always keep in mind whether there are some harm and risks of the research. The sixth point that would be that will you try to anonymize the participants in your publications. This can be difficult. As I said, information is generally public if it's online. So keep in mind how you can anonymize um, any results. Don't quote anything directly would be a general rule to follow. Also, the sharing of the data set might be important in terms of open research and being able to replicate results, but it might be difficult in the terms of keeping your participants anonymous. Thanks a lot, Nicole. Let's now move into the tool that you covered in the guidelines. And here I want to shout out to the data enthusiast in self-isolation, because one thing that's really amazing about the guidelines is that it's full of example of code. And in particular, the guidelines are focusing on getting data from Twitter using R. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about this choice of focusing on Twitter and on using R as well? So Twitter is a real-time social networking and information service. It was launched in 2006, and it's a site where people use character-limited messages and on their personalized half-public newsfeed. It has grown into a widespread channel of communication. By now, it has over 330 million monthly active users that post around 500 million tweets per day. So Twitter is quite massive, and it is one of the most popular sites. It is also especially interesting for us data enthusiasts because it has the least restrictions regarding data accessibility and it offers a lot of free access. Facebook and Instagram, on the other hand, have heavily limited the access to the data, especially in the past year. And default permissions only include having access to the name and profile picture of public profiles. All other data needs specific permissions and also often requires going through a review process the most important thing is that um, Twitter has is used in the context and by the people that we were researching in our initial collaboration. Now, why are we using R? R is a programming language for statistical computing, and it is free and open source. So for anyone interested, go look up R and download it and try it. It's free and there's a large community to engage with. So the capabilities of R are are extended through user-created packages and people are um, engaged in those communities and are very happy to help with any problems and questions. So in our case, we are using the package rtweet, which gives you a direct access to the Twitter interface. Another good thing with R is that both the collection and data analysis are possible with the same software with R. Another popular choice would be Python, and whether one uses Python or R is more of a matter of discipline. In the social sciences, R has become the more, most popular choice for data analysis at the moment. Thank you, Nicole. And j just to uh, go back to one of the points you made around the choice of Twitter, that Twitter was chosen precisely because the, the project that, that we were evaluating in the impact evaluation in Tanzania was heavily relying on uh, on Twitter users. Uh, so it's basically going back to the question around uh, 
use the uh, social media platform that is used in the context that we are researching. Do you know if it's possible to gather data from other platforms? You already mentioned Facebook and Instagram. How about data from uh, uh, WhatsApp, for example? Do you know if that would be possible? Now, WhatsApp is very different as WhatsApp is a platform of private chat. So there are group chats, but to have access to any chat history, you have to be part of the group. So yes, you can have access, you can collect WhatsApp data, but only if you are a member of the chat. Also, it's ethically very different to Twitter. As discussed, Twitter is public, while WhatsApp is extremely private. So it is absolutely necessary to have consent of the people that you are in a group chat with if you decide to work with WhatsApp data and collect WhatsApp data. But um, technically, it's very easy as WhatsApp allows you to just download the data, the complete data of any chat you're a part of. Thank you. This is this is great. And, and is bringing back to the points around the ethics and informed consent that we mentioned earlier. And this is also a nice segue to the next question, which is based on your experience, what are the things that a researcher or an evaluator need to know when setting up a data collection process? Well, the question at the core is, as always, what is your research goal? What are you trying to answer? And what kind of data do you need to answer that question? In terms of Twitter, there's different data available that is accessed through APIs. APIs are application programming interfaces. So these are a way to access the data structure, the data of a web page. In case of Twitter, there's the streaming API, which treats Twitter as a constant real-time data stream. So you plug into the future, basically. You start plugging into Twitter now and look at what is, what's happening in the future. And it gives you an, an access to a sample or to all tweets as they are published on Twitter. What you're trying to do, you need a search term to filter the results. So you might be interested in all tweets containing the hashtag COVID-19. And you're starting to collect all tweets that are published now up until you interrupt your script. The second thing next to the streaming API is the REST API. Those are used for single searches of historical information. So you might be interested in specific tweets and you pass your search API again, a certain filter like a hashtag and you tell your API, return me all tweets which include the hashtag COVID-19 and the REST API goes back up to about a week and returns all, all tweets that have been posted in the last week, including that hashtag. Um, you can also search for tweets that are posted by verified users or tweets that contain media such as videos or just popular tweets with minimum of retweets, etc. You might also use the user API if you're inter interested in particular users. With the user API, you can collect up to the most recent 3,200 tweets of a user as long as you have access to that user account. So as long as that user is public or you're friends with that users. An example for this would be if you're interested in what the World Health Organization has been posting in the past. So with the user API, you're able to collect the last 3,200 tweets the World Health Organization has posted, for example. So to summarize, with the streaming API, you start a continuous collection of tweets into the future 
and the collection ends once your script is interrupted, while with the REST API, you're historically filtering tweets of the past weeks or look at tweets of profile of users. So this all implies that you need to plan the timing of your data collection. Do you want to start now or do you want to look back? Do you want to go look into the future? And in general, just start early and repeat the collection if necessary. This is so interesting. And this is exactly some of the things that we've been discussing when we were um, working on this uh, collaboration uh, that was mentioned earlier. And I guess now my question is more around like the analysis and in the guideline, you you draw from uh, um, this impact evaluation in Tanzania where animators, uh, which are in essence community activists, started using social media in the setting of the project. Um, and we used this information for evaluation. Uh, and you use this example in the guidelines. So could you give us here maybe... Um, one example based on this work and maybe one based on um, the current uh, COVID pandemics? So what we did in the impact evaluation was, for example, that we looked at behavior over time and how this changed. So we were looking at frequency of tweets and we were interested to see how the frequency of tweets of the animators change um, over time and how the changes are different in different regions. So we were interested to see whether people changed their tweeting behavior depending on some certain intervention by Oxfam or by certain other happenings in the world. And to do that, we collected all the tweets of the users and were counting the number of tweets per day and looked at how it has changed. An example to do the same in the context of COVID-19 would be to look at the frequency of tweets that include the hashtag COVID-19 and how this has changed over time, what it, what, what it truly has. Something else that we did that is a bit more qualitative was we looked at word clouds. So we were interested in the content of tweets. So we tried to answer the question what animators in Tanzania were tweeting about. So we have collected all the tweets and now we were looking at what are the most often occurring words in those tweets. What are the topics and issues they raised and how were the different topics raised raised in different regions. Now, in the context of COVID-19, one could also look at what issues are raised together with COVID-19. So looking at all the tweets, including the hashtag COVID-19, what kind of words occur the most often in those tweets. Now, when doing those kind of analysis and when working with Twitter data and web data in general, something that we encounter, encountered were how do we treat and what do we do with outliers? So it's always important to just take a look at your tweets, at your data, and um, find out whether there are any highly active users or an extremely popular tweets. And it's important to find out if it's real content or if it's just spam. So if it's anything, if it's real content, you might want to include those tweets and those users. If it's spam, you probably want to delete it. Now, the first thing that we did with our data was um, descriptive analysis. We were trying to describe the tweeting behavior. So we were looking at how many tweets were posted and what were those tweets about. All of this is relatively straightforward, but the analysis is more complex when we try to identify causal relationships. So as I said, what we were, what we are very interested in is to assess 
the possible effect of interventions on the tweeting behavior. And um, there are different ways to go on about this. Possible strategies to analyze is working with, with a difference in differences approach to compare groups, to predict the counterfactual with machine learning approaches in which you would um, compare the observed reality with the prediction. So these are just different ways to find out whether there was a real causal relationship. One could also use the same approaches in the context of COVID-19. For example, you might, might be interested to find out what kind of effect government lockdowns have on tweeting behavior. Government lockdowns have been in place in different countries at different times. Again, this gives you the possibilities to have a, a difference in difference approach or again to use a machine learning approach to predict the counterfactual. Thank you, Nicole. This is very fascinating. Another point I would like to discuss is basically now that COVID-19 has made it harder for uh, evaluators and for researchers to gather data using a traditional face-to-face methods, I assume many people will be start looking at these sources of data as potential substitutes. What do you think are the main points that researchers need to consider when are trying to use social media data as a substitute for their research? I think it's also very important that not only researchers need to consider those points, but also just consumers of research. So especially now, a lot of interesting graphs and plots are are popping up on social media, which might not always show the truth or which might to be considered with a grain of salt. So not only researchers, but in particular, anyone looking at that research needs to be aware of limitations of social media data. So it's it's important to consider there are different sources of biases with social media data. So um, it is nice that web data is cost and time efficient to collect, but it's not perfect. There's a sample bias introduced by Twitter's algorithm. So Twitter doesn't return a full sample of tweets. It also doesn't return a random sample. So as a researcher, you don't really know what you get. There's some research that tries to figure out what the sample is that Twitter returns. And it seems like um, it returns the most popular tweets, but there are no, but there's no real explanation of what, what Twitter actually gives you. Also, Twitter has some restrictions that I mentioned, so it's only possible to go back a week, and it's also only possible to collect the most recent 3,000 tweets of a user. So these restrictions need to be kept in mind when doing any kind of analysis because it excludes some people and some tweets that might be interesting to you. So there's also always a population bias on Twitter. So it's important to keep in mind that Twitter users are not representative of the whole population. Not everyone is using Twitter. There's a digital inequality. So it is known that the typical Twitter users tend to be male, young and well-educated. So other people are not that well represented on Twitter. Also, there are power dynamics at play also in the digital space. So not everyone has the same opportunity and the same possibility to express their opinion on the web and on Twitter. Yes, and maybe to illustrate this point, um, I think uh, in the impact evaluation uh, that we worked on together, I think one piece that was really important is like the link between the online data and the offline data. And I mean, not only data, the online uh, reality and the offline one. And from an evaluation perspective, the, the, the picture would have been quite different. 
um, if focusing only on one aspect. Um, so if we consider only the online data, then the animators, um, which are this community activists, were all very involved on Twitter. Although we, you mentioned it, Nicole, earlier, we did see some variation different in um, per region. And but if you look now at a representative sample of citizen, uh, then you find out that only 10 percent had ever used social media and that that was even lower among women. So quite a different picture, uh, depending on the, the data source. One more point related to that from an evaluation perspective in the setting of very complex programming, which is often the case uh, in Oxfam uh, projects, the combining this information may allow you to test different assumptions. And a point that you made earlier, which is about one thing that's really important for uh, anyone who will start working with social media is really uh, taking into account the importance of the social context in which the data is generated. So when you look at the data, there's a lot of things that you don't see that is invisible by um, just having this online data, which could be the risk taken to have access to this data, or it could be the offline uh, consequences of um, of being online. And obviously, uh, with a gender lens for women and men, that may be very different. And the other thing would be that, uh, and I think, Nicole, you mentioned it already, uh, but that the online space itself or not neutral. So we talked about cyber violence, uh, potential backlash. We also have to take into account state surveillance and how that may affect the voice and behavior of people online. So yes, I think, thank you, Alexia. I think this all just sums up that we need to contextualize the social media data results and don't just rely only on social media data, but look at the context that it is created in and if possible, combine it with other survey results, interview results, and get a whole picture. Nicole, Alexia, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been a really interesting discussion. I particularly enjoyed the points around what is possible versus what is ethically appropriate to do with this data. The points around descriptive analysis versus causal analysis, how they differ and what are the different tools that can be used for that. And finally, the points that you brought around the potentials for using this data, keeping in mind what are the limitations, the inequalities and the power dynamics behind the data and the very relevant points that you brought as an example coming from a, from a evaluation in Tanzania. So thank you so much for that. Thanks a lot, Simone, for having us. And thanks a lot, Nicole. Thank you. This was really interesting. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. If you would like to access to the paper, please see the link on this page or visit the Oxfam Policy and Practice webpage. And remember, if you want to hear more from our Real Geek series and the Oxfam In-Depth podcast, you can subscribe to this show on all major podcast providers. Thank you very much and see you soon. Bye.